Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to begin in the 19th verse, but uh, let me tell you a little bit about uh, what was taking place here. You have an encounter here between Jesus and the woman at the well, and for many that's going to be a a familiar situation in terms of uh, having heard this uh, spoken of many times before. Jesus uh, sat down, it, it was midday, and the woman came to draw water. She was a Samaritan woman. And the dynamic in that day was that uh, Jews and Samaritans didn't appreciate one another. In fact, uh, Jews wouldn't speak to Samaritans. They looked down on them generally. And so this woman came, and she was a, a woman that we find out later had a bad reputation in town. In fact, that's probably why she was there at midday. That wouldn't be a typical time for women to come to draw their water. Most would come when it's cooler or early in the morning or before the day begins, that kind of a thing. But I'm quite sure that uh, she probably didn't get along very well with the women in that town. She probably knew that she was talked about by those women and wouldn't have been talked, uh, uh, they wouldn't interact with her, at least not in a good way. And so she probably just figured out when the best time to avoid them would be, and so she's there at midday. Jesus asks her for a drink. She's a little surprised. I'm surprised because, uh, you know, most Jews don't talk to Samaritans. (coughs) But they begin to talk. And Jesus tells her about a special kind of water. One that she's very interested in because it's a water that if you drink it, you don't get thirsty again. And whether she grasped the implications of that or whether she was thinking, oh, that'd be nice, then I wouldn't have to come here every day and worry about who I might encounter And so uh, she says, tell me more about this, and I would like that. So Jesus says, well, let's do this. Go call your husband, and then come here. She responds, oh, I don't have a husband. And Jesus, the God of the universe, who knows all hearts, who understands all circumstances, says, well, you know, you're quite right. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with is not your husband. She's taken aback. And we read this in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, 
I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, as we bow and as we continue to seek to understand just what you've called us to by way of being a disciple, will you today, Lord, teach us about worship? What pleases you? what you're looking for. And give us encouragement, Lord. Especially if today there are those here who realize that uh, they've never really worshipped you because they don't have a relationship with you. Or those whose worship has grown cold. Or those who are just going through the motions. Will you remind us today, Lord, of the joys that you offer to us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we know that uh, Jesus and this woman were having a discussion. When it became apparent to the woman that Jesus was a prophet, as she said, and she was saying that because he, he knew her situation, he knew what was going on in her life, and she suspected that he hadn't heard that from anybody in town because he was new to the area and so on. She asked a question. And it looks like she's trying to change the subject. In fact, when you look at the question in the context, it it seems like an off-the-wall question. They are going one direction in their discussion. Nothing 
about worship has been nothing about God's really been mentioned. And then, and then she says, well, tell me this, uh, the answer to this pertaining to worship. Now, I've got to tell you that if this was me and I was having a serious discussion with someone and I was in one of those difficult situations of having to confront someone about their sin and I had just confronted them about their sin and they ask a question like this, I'll tell you what I would do. I'd say, well, you know what, that might be an important question, but let's, let's get back to what we were talking about. Come on now. You know, let's, let's not avoid the subject at hand. And so as I projected myself into that, I had to ask the question, well, I wonder if she just got Jesus off the subject here. You think? I mean, you, th- you think that he was that easy to distract? And of course, my an- quick answer to that one was, well, no, that can't be it. You know, she... Uh, 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 person like that is not going to take control of the conversation. There's no place where we see anyone being in control of Jesus, much less this woman. And so there has to be another explanation as to why he lets it go in this direction. He goes right with it. Whether she was being evasive or not, Jesus doesn't bring up adultery again. Now that's a serious thing. And he doesn't address it anymore. But he does address the worship issue. And so I ask myself, why would that be the case? I'm convinced that rather than worship being a little side issue that she was able to get him off on this theological discussion, what we see here is that worship is at the essence of her issues, of her problems, and of her sin. And the fact that when she asks a question about that, That was precisely where Jesus wanted to go. And so he left, in essence, the secondary issue and went to that which was the most important. That worship, rightly understood, is a life issue, is at the core of our behavior. And so Jesus addresses it. She asks where to worship. Jesus says the key is not where, but how and whom you worship.
His emphasis is that the Father is seeking people who will worship Him in spirit and truth. Spirit worship. Spirit-filled worship. Because He is spirit. Truth worship. Truthful worship. Worship based on the truth because He is the truth and He has revealed to us in His Word, which is truth, how we are to worship. And so when we worship, we ought to worship in spirit and according to the truth that He has revealed to us. Now related to that, when we're talking about a disciple, several things here. One is that a disciple practices what I'm calling balanced worship. And I'm not completely uh, uh, thrilled with that word, but that, that's the only word I could come up with for this. What I'm talking about in terms of worship, uh, in this case being balanced worship, is outward and inward. Uh, so let me explain that a little bit. A disciple will worship because God commands it and directs it. Let me just give you some um, uh, verses uh, In Psalm 27, verse 8, he says, You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And that's in the context of worship. And then Psalm 100, verse 4, Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Now you could go all through the Psalms, and if you didn't go anywhere else, you would have dozens and dozens of verses about worship and about what ought to be included in worship. You would find that we ought to include what we've done today, many of the things that we have done uh, to present offerings, that we are uh, to kneel in worship. Now, I think that's uh, uh, talking about a, a heart attitude. It's not wrong to kneel. But I don't know that it's absolutely necessary for it to be true worship, but it's a heart attitude in talking about uh, praying. We are to shout in worship. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Shout? Really? You mean enthusiasm? I mean, even at the 845 service, really? I know. That's what it says. Now, some of you say, well, oh, I can't shout. You know, it's a personality thing. And it's funny because I've had people through the years say something like that to me, and then I've had the opportunity to observe them at a ball game or something like that. And I've said, you know, you, you can shout. I or somebody watching their child or their grandchild, and, and it's, it's apparent that they can show enthusiasm when it comes to worship, and we're called to do that. It's not uh, just going through the motions. It says clap. There is a time for that. I don't know that, uh, you know, there's always the controversy of do we clap after somebody uh, plays something and we don't want to highlight the musician, we're doing it for God and so on. And uh, these are just ways that we can 
worship, play instruments, and there's all kinds of instruments. That's one of the things I love about our worship is the variety of uh, instruments that we have uh, over the course of uh, a month. You'll see all kinds of instruments up here. And in, in the scripture, it says, play them loudly. So those of you that say, oh, that organ was loud today, you know, well, that's not a bad thing when it comes to uh, worshiping the God of the universe. And then it says, sing over and over again. It says, sing. And some of you who claim to be disciples, and I know you are, you won't do what God says here. You just won't sing. And it's an explicit command. You might say, well, I can't sing. Well, if you won't sing because you don't think you sound good, then it's a pride thing. And you know what? Worship is not about you. It's about God. And he has said, that glorifies my name. You think that one's hard. The Bible says, lift up your hands. Now somebody's going to say, I'm going I'm to preempt this one, okay? Because I know. Somebody would say, well, I've been a Presbyterian all my life, and Presbyterians don't lift their hands. Well, in God's Word, Psalm 134, verse 2, lift your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I am not willing to concede that Paul and David weren't Presbyterians, okay? <laughs> they lifted their hands. I'm also not willing to say that just because I'm not used to it, that it's okay not to do what God says to do. Now, when it comes to raising your hands in prayer or in worship, let me, let me be right up front with you. Don't worry. I'm not going to make you do this. Because I've been in situations where I've been said, okay, now everyone raise your hands. And you know what? I rebel against that. And it doesn't do my worship any good because I say, well, if he tells me to raise my hands, I'm not raising my hands. I'm raising my hands when God tells me to raise my hands. So don't worry. We're not going to get into that where I will say, okay, everybody raise your hands now. You know, reaching out for God's blessing is a different situation. But when it comes to raising your hands in prayer and worship, 
you better not find yourself in the camp that says it's wrong or the Presbyterians don't do that. God says that he loves it when we worship that way. He says this is a way to worship and that's good enough for me. So if God leads you to do that, it's okay at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church because we believe we ought to do and be free to do what God's word says. Now those are all outward. And there are other things outward. But we need to understand this too, and here's where the balance comes in. It's possible to worship outwardly without worshiping inwardly. Matthew 15, verse 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So, it's not just about doing these outward things. In fact, you can do all of those outward things and still not be worshiping. John MacArthur breaks it down into four categories, and I like his categories, so let me share them with you. He says that uh, these are kinds of wrong worship. One would be worship of false gods, Exodus 34. 14, for you shall worship no other God, for the, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. That's from the Ten Commandments. So, um, worshiping false gods. And then you can go over to Romans 1. I'm not going to take you there, but if you go to Romans 1, you will see that it shows what happens when people worship false gods and when they worship gods that they made with their, with their own hands. And it talks about deterioration of uh, uh, civilization. People going into sin and even inventing sin. And that's what happens with worshiping false gods. Second category would be worship of the true God in a wrong way. For instance, the golden calf. Argument could be made that they were worshiping the true God, but they had just reduced him to a thing, to something they could see. And that's wrong as well. A third category, worship of the true God in a self-styled manner. Matthew 15, 3. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In other words, their traditions were more important than God's Revelation. And fourth, worship of the true God in a right way with a wrong attitude. You say, well, wow, there's so many ways we can do it wrong. Well, God warns us about those because of the danger. Malachi 1 Talks uh, in that it talks about offering polluted foods upon my altar. In other words, they were offering something upon their on his altar. That was the right thing to do. They were worshiping the true God in the right way, but they had a wrong attitude. But you say, how have we polluted you? 
by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? Um, and when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show your favor, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. It's, it's like going to church and going through all of the motions so that outwardly people would say, yeah, that person is worshiping but you come here without your heart, without your commitment to your Father. And that's all you're doing is going through motions just so you can check it off. I feel better because I've been to church. God says, you know, if you do that, I don't accept it. I don't accept your worship. Now, the root is not then to say, okay, well, I guess I might as well not go to church today because I have a bad attitude. But instead, it's adjust your attitude. Know why you're here, why you come. And that leads us to the the third aspect, and that is a disciple's worship is based on absolute need for God. It's longing to know him better. James 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Psalm 42, we sang of this last week. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You see, it's it's love and desire, not merely duty. Is it our duty to worship? Yes. But it ought to be out of a delight. Now, in our house, and by the way, my wife is on the women's retreat but I would tell you this even if she were here. So, And she, she's uh, heard me tell this in, in public before. But I will tell you that the, the subject of flowers in our house is kind of a funny one, okay? In this sense, when I was a young pastor, I went to a, a, a church that I was going to be serving And I had to do a funeral very soon after that. And so I went by to meet the funeral director. We had a nice chat. He had just had a funeral that day. And he said, here, take these flowers to your wife. And he had a spray of flowers. I think the card was off, but... uh, And he, I said, oh, no. And he insisted, and to make a long story short, against my better judgment, 
I showed up at our house a few minutes later with a spray of flowers. And Connie said, what are those? It, it was obvious where they had come from. Now, suppose I actually went out and bought some roses for Connie, okay? And I took them home to her. And she said, oh, are beautiful. And she gave me a big hug and a thank you. Then suppose I said matter-of-factly, oh, don't mention it. It's my duty. Well, you think the secondhand funeral flowers were a problem. (laughs) This would be worse. Was was I honoring her or just doing it out of duty? If it's not out of spontaneous affection, roses don't honor. In fact, they could belittle her. Here's the way Edward John Carnell puts it. Suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her that night. Good night. Her answer is, you must, but not that kind of must. What she means is this, unless a spontaneous affection for my person motivates you, your overtures are stripped of all moral value. Our worship should be out of a delight. out of a genuine love for the one who first loved us. And a real disciple will not give up on corporate worship. Hebrews 10, verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, deeds not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I have seen through the years, in fact, too many, when people have gone through difficult times and they have fallen away from worship. And that is the exact wrong prescription. When there's nothing but turmoil in life when we worship in spirit and in truth. There is peace with God. When seemingly there's nothing to rejoice about in our life, when we worship in spirit and truth, we can find delight in God. And when no satisfaction or relief is inside of our life, when we worship in spirit and truth, we can drink of that which quenches our thirst and eat of that which satisfies. Robert Murray McShane died at a young age. He had a difficult, short life, but he did keep a journal. It is recorded in a book called The Memoirs and Remains of Robert Murray McShane. 
I've read it several times. Because of journal entries like this, February 23rd, Sabbath. Rose early to seek God and found Him whom my soul loveth. Who would not rise early to meet such company? The rains are over and gone. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. As a disciple, a right perspective on worship leads to a right perspective of God and a right perspective on life. May God grant it. Let's bow together.